Hey everyone, welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. My name is Corey. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Today, we are recapping, we're going to try to recap from Daniel chapter seven to Joel chapter three. There is a lot. There's a lot. A lot. Yeah. Especially in the end of Daniel. <laughs> there is a lot. I know that some of it is controversial, I guess we'd say, where there's different differing opinions on yes. how to interpret Daniel. So I'm going to try my best to just give you an exact recap of what happened in the chapters and talk about some of the non-controversial interpretations and then we'll see how it goes. Some of the historical, inter- <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Okay, okay? Sure. Don't come for me. Yeah. I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel chapter seven. Okay, so Daniel has lived through the time period of the Neo-Babylonian Empire into the transition to the Median Persian Empire that's taken over. But Daniel 7 goes back in time to the Neo-Babylonian Empire, back to the time of Belshazzar, that last king. So we're told that during that time, Daniel had a a dream of four beasts. The first beast was a lion uh, with the wings of an eagle, but these these wings were then torn off and the lion stood up on two feet like a human and a human mind was given to it. The second beast was a bear that had three ribs in its teeth. It was biting them. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. The third beast was a leopard with four wings on its back. It had four heads and it had authority to rule. The fourth beast uh, had large iron teeth and it crushed and devoured victims and trampled anything that it didn't uh, crush with its teeth. Uh, It had 10 horns and it was different than the other beasts. Now, while Daniel was watching that beast, a little horn came up among the 10 horns and started boasting. So God takes his throne and the beast was slain and thrown into the fire, but the other beasts were allowed to live on for a little while longer. Uh, We see this son of man figure. He's called the son of man here in Daniel 7. He's given authority. He's given sovereign power and glory and his kingdom lasts forever. And we're told that he was worshiped by all. So we're also told at the end of Daniel 7 that these beasts represent kingdoms that would rise on the earth, the fourth kingdom being the most fierce. Right. Daniel 7. Uh, and I know there's so much to talk about. So already, so, so I, I want to draw some, also just some parallels to sure. what we see in Revelation. There's some parallels. There's some similarities to what we read in Revelation. Mm-hmm. There's some differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so first off, there are four distinct beasts that are mentioned in Daniel. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Revelation, uh, there's the dragon, there's the first beast and the second beast. Yep. And the first beast is like a combination of the beasts that you read in Daniel, with yeah. the exception of there's no bird, uh, and there's and instead in Revelation there's a lion's mouth. But the bear and the leopard, that right. mix, there's seven heads. They both have seven heads, but they, all, they each have ten horns. Mm-hmm. So that's a similarity there. Whereas you have as a one composite beast in Revelation. It is very interesting to compare and contrast. Right. Yes. And what's interesting about that too is we just read in um, – Earlier about the with the in Daniel about how the uh, the iron will mix with the clay and become brittle. So mm-hmm. you have this mixture. So you have this mixture happening here as well. This mixture. I'm not gonna. I, I, okay. I'm like, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, whoa, that maybe lot. that's too much. Anyways, you need to interpretation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's I know. A bad thing, but. No. Anyways. No. I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm not trying to get. You. Anyways. So back to the parallels and, perp- and what's perpendicular to each other. So the dragon in the first beast of Revelation, all, like I said, have ten horns, which are the ten rulers, which we discussed. Yeah. Uh, 
In Daniel, there's a little horn that comes among uh, yep. that comes among them, right? It grows between the ten horns and then removes three uh, three of them. Yep. Uh, but there's no little horn that's mentioned in in Revelation. There's just a second beast, mm-hmm. uh, and that's usually who people identify because he speaks the boasting. Yeah, he has, those, he has the same the elements. The little horn in Daniel seven is said to boast. Yeah, that's right. So we have the same elements of the little yeah. horn, but it's applied differently here, right? So the little, the little horn does speak pride and blasphemy, and he wars against the saints and defeats them. And so does the first beast of Revelation and stuff like that. So you have a lot of these parallels here, yeah. but, it's, it, but it's um, symbolically different. Go ahead. And bottom line is that God's kingdom wins, yes. both in Daniel oh, and in Revelation. And in both of their cases, the little horn and the, the second beast are defeated by fire, which is For important, sure, yeah. right? So it's like you have this, once again, this parallel. And here I'll read to what you said in verses 21 to 22 and also 27. I'll combine mm-hmm. those about how the kingdom of God wins. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ages of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Right, and okay? just for clarification, where were you reading from? Oh, so, uh, da- this is Daniel. This is Daniel 7, Perfect. verses 21 to 22. And verses, now here to do 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given... To the people of the saints of the Most High, right? The kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions. So here again, we have that that stone that was cut by no human hand mm-hmm. that spreads across the whole earth. Now, you, yeah, you're reckoning back. To We're Dan- reckoning yeah. back to the to earlier when we read in mm-hmm. Daniel. It's now being presented here again in another way, where mm-hmm. the where the kingdom is spreading out, right? That'll have an everlasting kingdom, and it's given to the people of the, the saints of the Most High, right? That is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven we yep. spoke about as we talked about last week. It's there again. Go ahead. That's <laughs> okay, it. there's so much. That's there's so like, much. We have I know. To keep we got, going. I know. Daniel 8. So, this is a vision that Daniel had in the citadel of Susa. So, this is going forward in time now to the Persian Empire. This was a Persian capital city. Uh, and Daniel sees a ram with two long horns. Initially, one horn was longer than the other, but then the shorter horn grew and it conquered the west, the north, and the south, and no one could stand against it. Now, Then uh, a goat with a horn between its eyes came quickly from the west and it defeated that ram. At the height of the goat's power, its horn was broken off and four prominent horns took its place. Uh, Out of one of the four horns, another horn grew towards Israel and it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. So the the, um, pretty well accepted historical interpretation of this is that the ram with the two horns, which like one was shorter than the other initially, but then it grew. um, That is the media Persian empire with Persia eventually taking precedent. So becoming the Persian empire. The goat with the one horn between its eyes is Greece as led by Alexander the Great. and it conquers the ram. It conquers the Persian empire. The horn getting broken off of the ram would be Alexander the Great's untimely death. And the four horns that grow up after uh, 
that death uh, is the four army commanders of Alexander the Great uh, who split up control over the territory that they had just conquered. Then the one little horn that grew towards Israel would be Antiochus Epiphanes, who during the intertestamental time period, so that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he uh, went to Israel. He really wreaked havoc there. He desecrated the temple. Uh, and this, this uh, you know, his meddling in the affairs of Israel is what led to the Maccabean revolt uh, and the, the that miracle of the lights in the temple that's still celebrated today as the festival of Hanukkah. Okay, so there is a note at the end of Daniel 8 that says, understand that this vision concerns the time of the end. Now, this could either mean the time of the end of the persecution that the Jews were currently going through in Daniel's day, like the the exile, but it could also mean that we have a prophecy of type here, that there could be a future event that looks a lot like this event. It could also be both. So, Right. All right. Well, there is two... (laughs) Every day we can't do it every chapter. Uh, okay, only for Daniel, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Okay, so there is something imagine here. Out of them came a little horn. This is Daniel verses nine to twelve. Yeah. So there is a spiritual element to this to keep in mind as well, and I just want to highlight the one spiritual, the, the kind of spiritual okay. aspect here. So out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, as you mentioned, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Right there, you have that symbolic parallel between the hosts of heaven being mm-hmm. the stars. So that's important to remember. It's not just a geographic or a physical empire taking over another one. Right. There's a spiritual uh, – so, sorry about that. There's a spiritual side that's underpinning this that's that's happening as well. And yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Well, and, and the question that, that Jews and Christians have to wrestle with was, did Antiochus Epiphanes fulfill this completely or was he a type? And that's the debate. That, that's a question that that right. is open for And that's what everyone talks about. Because yes. some people think he partially did. Some people think it, he, he fully, fully did. did. Yes. Right. Anyways, that All would be right. that. All right. Daniel chapter 9. So uh, during the Persian reign, uh, Daniel knows that the prophet Jeremiah had written that the exile of Judah would last for 70 years. So he begins repenting. Daniel begins repenting for himself, for his people, uh, and asking for God's mercy that he would end this exile and fulfill his word through the prophet Jeremiah. So interestingly, the, the angel, the messenger, the heavenly messenger Gabriel comes to Daniel and gives him a really cool prophecy of 77s. So these are a series of weeks and years that anticipate the coming of the Messiah, the rebuilding of the temple, the killing of the Messiah, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple um, in AD 70. And then it talks about wars and different covenants and the abomination of desolation. So really, really rich chapter. Now, Daniel chapter 10, this chapter is dated to the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So again, now we're in the Persian empire. Uh, And Daniel is given this uh, revelation about a great war. And and it makes him go into mourning for three weeks. He doesn't want to talk about it. He just goes right into mourning. Then he's given a vision to understand uh, what this great war is all about. And um, 
So this vision is of a man who's more than just a man. So there's a description of a body like topaz, a face like lightning, eyes like flashing torches, arms and legs like burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. And this this person basically tells Daniel to be strong because he's come to explain to Daniel what's written in the book of truth. Daniel chapter 11, Daniel learns that there's only four more kings of Persia to come after after this and that the fourth king will wage war against Greece. He's told that a conquering king will come who will rule everyone, but his kingdom will be a split up. It will be parceled out. It won't go to his descendants or be as powerful as it was uh, under him. Uh, so he goes through all of what will happen essentially in history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in verses 21 to 35 of Daniel 11, describes Antiochus uh, four Epiphanes uh, who really really messed with the land of Israel. He persecuted and oppressed the Jews during his time. Uh, The abomination that causes desolation that he's prophesied to set up in the temple uh, during Antiochus Epiphanes' time, it was a meteor dedicated to Zeus. But it should also be noted that this imagery, the abomination that causes desolation, is again reused later by Christ uh, to talk about a future time from him. Now, verses 40 to 45 of Daniel chapter 11, again, are a bit controversial in their interpretation. Uh, People often either believe that it's a failed prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes uh, because he didn't do all the things that these five verses say, um, or they interpret it a different way, um, kind of. Uh, or based off of verse 40 that says, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. This has switched then in in this interpretation to the king that Jesus prophesies about later in the gospel. So it it looks forward to a future fulfillment uh, of this as well. So someone uh, very much like Epiphanes will re-arise. So... This really goes well with Daniel chapter 12. That would that interpretation would really go well with uh, Daniel chapter 12. Did you want to say something? My only thing is like I know that people think that it was fully fulfilled by him. There's some things I know that in Matthew 24 when Christ says, oh, let the reader understand that the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel is to come. Yeah. He's talking about in the future tense, right? Yep. And, and people right. see so, that to be 80, 70 with the destruction of the temple. Sure. So the question right. is, did Epiphanes fully fulfill this and then it's being used again as a type? Or right. did he not fully fulfill it? And, 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 and those five verses of Daniel should be applied to what Jesus was talking about or right. to a later time? That, when he, because he used that in the future tense, it really does make it feel like that Antiochus Epiphanes did not fulfill it all. And, right. and, and that's, yeah, and that's yeah. recognized or, by a lot of scholars. Or that like, he's a type. He, or, or that he's a type. So there's something that's unfulfilled or that he's yep. a type, something like that. Either way, yep, it's It just, was not the end yet. It's debatable, and I'm not well-versed enough to know what, even to even take a side, really. Right, because the, um, the uh, a lot of Daniel is very clearly talking about the uh, the Greek empire that was split between the four and then Antiochus, yes. uh, Antiochus Epiphanes breaking, like breaking off and going towards Israel. So there, he, he definitely did fulfill biblical prophecy oh, yes. within Daniel. No, yeah, for sure. Did. Yeah, yeah. But he, like how much and what does that mean? We can't ignore and how does it. How does it, does it layer well, through time? Does it repeat? We, We're getting well, off. Impo- but- yeah, I know. But it's with the last note is you can't ignore prophecy 
historical prophecies that the ancient people thought were fulfilled. Yeah. And because that's really important. Totally. That's so important. I think a lot of times we just ignore, oh, they thought that. But it's like when Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the temple is going to be destroyed in this generation, everyone goes, oh, like – it's going to happen it's again. It's going to happen again. It's gonna and happen. then all of a sudden. But he knew what he was talking about because it had already happened. And then when, you know, Rome surrounds the city, all the Christians are like, look, Christ talked about this. Get out now. It was and, even before Rome surrounded the city. But, yeah. Right. But the point was that they they were they relied, the Christians at the time relied on the prophecy of Christ and yeah. Daniel yep. to be like, get out of the city because yep. they're, they're going to destroy it. And they did. And to us be like, yeah, they weren't talking about that. To completely dismisses. Yeah, uh, that generation. Yeah, what now they you're went talking through. about the destru- destruction of yes. AD seventy. Yes, but yes. yeah. Anyways, it's related to it. But anyways, it is just simply saying we can't dismiss <laughs> historical uh, prophecies that have historically fulfilled. For Agreed. Our own, for our own desires. Anyways. Agreed. Okay, Daniel chapter twelve. This is the last chapter of Daniel. So. This is all about how a time of great distress will happen, but how the people of God will ultimately be delivered. So the dead will be resurrected for judgment, some to life and some to shame. So this is all of the dead, uh, people of God and, and not. Now, Daniel is told to roll up the vision like in a scroll, and seal it until the time of the end because it's not now it's not his time to know this so someone asked the man how long it will be to the fulfillment of all of these things and the man responds it will be for a time times and half a time uh when the power of the holy people has finally broke all these things will be completed uh, when the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up there will be 1290 days blessed is he who waits for and reaches the end of the 1335 days which is three and a half years now questions is this meant to be a real number is this meant to be a symbolic number all of these things are questions that christians wrestle with um the takeaway here is that God's is that is that you know God will he is going to accomplish this he will end evil there is a plan uh even if we can't perfectly interpret it on this side of everything um okay so the man tells Daniel go your way uh and 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 rest and the in the end, you'll be resurrected to receive your allotted inheritance, is what he tells Daniel. Like, it's not it's not going to be in your time. You're, you're going to die. You're going to rest. It's going to be great. Okay, that's the end of Daniel. <laughs> we did it. We got through Daniel. Right. Okay, Hosea chapter one. We are going to do a big jump, guys, in time. We are going back before the destruction of the temple. We are going back before the advent of the Persian Empire, before the advent of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. We're back in the reigns of the kings of Jerusalem, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, Those are the kings ruling during the lifetime of, of Hosea the prophet in Jerusalem. And in northern Israel, in Samaria, we're told that Jeroboam is reigning. So this would be Jeroboam II. Okay. So this uh, means that Hosea is a direct contemporary with Isaiah the prophet. Um, and also that uh, this is, you can read about these kings in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapters 15 to 20. So before the fall of northern Israel to Assyria, before the fall of Judah to 
Babylon. Uh, And Hosea is prophesying in northern Israel, while Isaiah the prophet is prophesying in Judah. Okay, so we've got these two prophets of God. So God has Hosea in chapter one marry a promiscuous woman, someone who is known to be unfaithful. Um, So Hosea marries Gomer and she has their firstborn son that they name Jezreel, meaning God scatters. And his name is a reference to a slaughter at Jezreel that was enacted by King Jehu of Israel. Uh, So essentially God is going to put an end to this slaughter by ending northern Israel. There's going to be a battle fought in the Valley of Jezreel, which is why God has them name their son. Jezreel. All right. So then uh, Hosea and Gomer have a daughter and they name her Lo-Ruma, meaning not loved, because God will no longer show love to Israel to forgive them. So judgment is coming for northern Israel. They have another son that they named Loami, meaning not my people. And this is supposed to be a rejection of the people of Israel. You're not my people. I'm not your God. So things are looking very bleak for the northern kingdom of Israel. The chapter does still end with hope, though, that one day Israel will again be called the children of the living God and that the two nations, Israel and Judah, will reunite. Uh, Then the the negative children's names, so that the children of Homer and uh, um, Hosea and Gomer, uh, their negative names will be are reversed. So uh, the day of Jezreel will be great. They will return to Jezreel and the brother will be called my people instead of not my people. And the sister will be called my loved one instead of not my loved one. So in case you're worried about those kids growing up with terrible names, their names got changed <laughs> for prophetic reasons. <laughs> okay, Hosea chapter two. This is a really long poem that portrays Israel as a uh, Um, an adulterous wife of God, uh, who God's going to cast away because she has chosen her lovers over her husband, God. Uh, God's going to take her back out to the wilderness, to the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. And there God will speak tenderly to her while she's in the Valley of Trouble, and she will then respond to God. So do you see like what's happening here in this in this prophecy is God's looking forward into the future. He's going to cause northern Israel to be captured, to go off into exile, to go through great, great trouble. But during that trouble, God's still going to be speaking to the people so that he can so that he can get them to respond to him so that they can repair that relationship between them. So at the end of the exile, their relationship will be better than it was at the beginning of uh, the exile. And the way Hosea 2 puts this is that rather than my master, they will call God my husband. Hosea chapter 3. Okay. So, uh, Hosea, God tells Hosea to go and show love to his wife again, even though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. So take her back. So he buys her. It's a bride price and they are sworn to a vow of celibacy. So this is an unconsummated marriage at this point. And this celibacy is to represent that Israel will live for a long time without a king, without a prince, without sacrifices or any kind of religious involvement. Um, So 
celibacy here is supposed to represent nothing going on religiously. Then after this time, Israel will again come back to God. So there is a really interesting controversy here. A lot of people are like, this isn't Gomer. This is a different wife. We don't have tons of time to go into it, but I didn't want to not mention it because it is a pretty pretty big controversy when people discuss Hosea, but it's it's really interesting uh, because one verse can literally be translated, go again, love a woman, not necessarily go show love to your wife again. And then he buys her with a bride price. So is he rebuying Gomer or is he is their relationship. Long story, but there's, there is a debate over this chapter. Okay. Hosea chapter four. This is a really long indictment of Israel's sins. So we're talking the sins of idolatry, injustice, a lack of knowledge. Um, both men and women are guilty of the sin of sexual immorality. Um, and then there's a command that Hosea gives to Judah. So not the nation that he's in, Specifically, he says, Judah, don't follow after Israel's ways. Don't go to Israel for any sort of advice, Uh, which unfortunately we know Judah does not listen to. Hosea chapter 5, this is God bringing judgment against the priests of Israel who have led the people into idolatry. So they've encouraged this idolatry. uh, And there's a judgment against uh, the leaders of Israel, so the kings and the elders, because they've been changing God's laws, writing their own laws. Uh, Basically, Hosea chapter 5 is there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning for these sins. Hosea chapter 6, there's this plea written as a person of God for the people to turn back to God and repent. So please do it. Then God speaks and he says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? meaning Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I will cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So that's Hosea 6, verses 4 to 6. So we see God... uh, being very honest with his struggle over uh, uh, over Israel and Judah and, and them not sincerely following him. Hosea chapter 7 continues on in uh, a really interesting passage. I'm going to read it again for you this year. It's Hosea 7 verses 11 to 15. Ephraim, northern Israel, is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. So this complete switching of culture has occurred in Israel and Judah where they're no longer, they, they say that they're people of God, but they are not following him at all, not even close. Hosea chapter 8 This is all about the uselessness of Israel's new religion. Uh, 
it's it's put like this. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. So nothing, right? Uh, the stock has no head. It will produce no flower. So they're working and working and working and working and working and nothing's going to happen. The destruction of their land is assured in Hosea chapter 8. The judgment of God is coming. Hosea chapter 9, God likens the sins of Israel to the sins of Gibeah in the book of Judges. This is really bad. Uh, If you want to read that, you can go back. It's Judges 19 to 21. Um, The whole point of Judges 19 to 21 was that Israel had descended so far into immorality that they were just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah and worthy of destruction. So God likens the sins of Israel at, at that present day to the sins of Gibeah, to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Basically, you're going to be destroyed. Your destruction is assured. Hosea chapter 10. So the city Bethel, house of God, meaning house of God, this is where the original King Jeroboam, Jeroboam 1, set up calf idols that were supposed to represent God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Uh, Here in Hosea chapter 10, God calls Bethel Bethaven, meaning house of wickedness. And Hosea foretells that the idol will be carried off to Assyria as spoils of war. Uh, And the thrust of Hosea chapter 10 is repent. It's time to seek the Lord. Hosea chapter 11, this is really interesting and it and it really shows God's love for Israel. Uh, let, let me quote some, some of the verses for you. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. So we get all of these tender images of, of, of God raising up Israel like a child, uh, And then their punishment that God brings upon them, it moves God's compassion to save them once and for all, okay? Hosea chapter 12 also talks about Israel's sin, but interestingly, it brings it back to Jacob and Esau in the womb and and, uh, how they were like wrestling each other, but then also uh, Jacob wrestling with God back in Genesis. Uh, You've and, and the point of talking about that in Hosea chapter 12 is, Israel, you have struggled with mankind, like with your own brothers, and you've struggled with God. So stop and now come back to God. You've done it all. Now come back to God. Hosea chapter 13 uh, has a really famous verse in it, a very famous New Testament verse here in Hosea. Uh, it's, uh, where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion, even though he thrives among his brothers. So Israel is getting destroyed in this verse. But what's really interesting is that in the new covenant, under the covenant of Christ, uh, the apostle Paul is able to see that that, that punishment uh, has now been paid by Christ. So he's able to take that verse in a positive way and say confidently in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul's relating back to Hosea and he's saying, see, there was a punishment before, but Christ has now taken that punishment for our rebellion, which is pretty cool. And then the last chapter of Hosea is 14, and this is all about how God will heal a repentant Israel. All right. It's a lot. 
It's a lot, I know. We've got... I had to stop talking. I know, I'm sorry. We've got three chapters of Joel to do. Uh, Joel chapter one. Joel is of an unknown date, okay? So up up for debate when Joel lived and when he prophesied. Uh, He's otherwise an unknown prophet, not talked about in the Kings. Some other prophets are. But the main issue in Joel is that there's been a plague of locusts in Judah, which, uh, you know, will lead to mass death, potentially. So there's a call to mourn in Joel chapter one because of this great plague of locusts that's on its way. So Joel chapter two, we see these locusts. We imagine these locusts. Joel imagines these locusts. (laughs) as an invading army, bringing the judgment of God. So God has called for these little soldiers. Uh, So God calls for the people then to repent and turn to him. So verse 13 says this, rend your heart, not your garments. So when people would um, mourn outwardly, they would rip their, their outer robes, their clothing. So God's saying, don't do that. Rend your heart, make it real. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sa- sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. He may leave you some food so that you can even eat and offer it to him right? All right. So then there's this call for praying and fasting uh, and God relents and promises to keep them and give them food, keep them safe and give them food. Uh, And this is where we get uh, the promise in Joel that's quoted later by Peter in the book of Acts at Pentecost. uh, And afterward, Uh, This is God speaking. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, That's all recorded in Joel chapter two. So it's a really interesting chapter to look at that that, that dynamic. (laughs) Now, our last chapter for today, Joel chapter three. This is all about how God will judge the nations for how they have handled his people of Israel and Judah. So, Judah and Jerusalem will be inhabited forever by God's people and God will not leave the guilty unpunished, nor will he leave innocent blood unavenged. It's this warning to the rest of the world to be careful how we treat the people of God. All right. If you have any comments, if you have any questions, which you may, because there was a lot that we went over. That's okay. Pop them in the comments down below and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.